This is the Rappaport Diamond Podcast. And now your host, Avi Kravitz. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast. My name is Avi Kravitz. And today we have Roland Laurie with us, um, who is our guest in the podcast today. Roland is the CEO of the International Gemological Institute, otherwise known as IGI, which is a leading um, a grading laboratory with some 18 locations around the world. It's very well known with, within the industry. So we're very lucky to have Roland with us. And thank you for joining us. Welcome, Roland. Thank you for inviting me. Um, it's great to speak to you again. And we've had um, a number of conversations in the past about the state of the market and what IGI is up to. So I'm looking forward to to giving some of your or hearing some of your insight at this um, at this complicated time in our industry. So I think to start off with, maybe can you give us an update on IGI's operations around the world? How have you responded to the coronavirus? And in terms of your operations, how have you been affected? Okay, now, of course, we know it's uh, tough times for everybody. And it has taken, you know, some time to adapt to the changes. In the beginning, we thought it was going to be much shorter. But a few weeks ago, I wrote a letter, you know, to IGI employees saying that we have an invited companion called Mr. or Mrs. COVID. And the only way that I see things going forward is to start living with this uninvited friend. Means we have to be now careful and active at the same time. I think for a long time, some people, part of the population was too careful and just closed up. Other part of the population was maybe too active. Now, I think we understood that the only way to survive is economy has to go on. And we have to be careful at the same time. So we have applied this to IGI, and this has allowed us to reopen rather quickly and to be able to be there for our customers. So, I mean, you have grading labs and offices around the world. Are all of those operating now? Yes, uh, now all of them are operating. Now, of course, it depends also of the rules of every country. So some countries they can operate 100%. Other countries, they can operate you know, only partly. In India, it even depends, you know, from city to city. We have more than 10 labs in India. So in total, we have 24 labs. So more than 10 labs in India. Uh, Not all of the 10 labs are working in India. Some of them partially, others are still closed. So it really depends on location. It doesn't depend so much of IGI than of locations. But even when we are closed in some locations, we try to give the full service to our customers from other locations. Mm, interesting. Um, and I think the grading labs are in, a, in a, a good position to sort of monitor the recovery, given that um, diamantes and jewelers are sending their pieces to, to you for grading. And so I guess you can monitor the level of activity that's going on um, around the world in different locations based on the intake that you have of stones and of finished jewelry. So what sort of insights are you picking up at this moment in terms of the recovery of the loose stone diamond market and also for for finished jewelry? Yes, I I think that the problems come more comes more from the production side and the manufacturing side than the consumer side. Now, I'm not going to say that everything is right on the consumer side, but orders are coming in. 
I see real orders in United States, in China, in India, mostly in those areas. Europeans are made maybe a little bit more conservative. But so orders are there, but the problem is factories are closed in India, means very little manufacturing. Production is not really there either. You know, people are afraid to buy rough, are afraid to go into big expenses. So it's really, you know, everyone is examining what's happening on the other side. But I have to say that very quickly, we have seen orders coming in. Already in May, orders started coming in already. And we've been able to deliver most of the orders. So it's orders in terms of diamonds that are being sent to to IGI for grading? Yes, from, from retailers. You know, at IGI, I talk diamonds, I talk jewelry, finished jewelry, and I talk uh, lab-grown. Okay, we tried IGI <laughs> to cover, you know, the complete panel of what the jeweler is selling in his jewelry shop. Okay, so it's a little bit of everything. Of course, everyone has a specialization. But what we see is that the retailers want to have goods in their shops. That's for sure. Or the online, the online platforms as well. They want to have goods. Hmm. Um, I mean, the, the, the impression is that they have left over stock from before the virus um, sort of started to spread. Is that a, is that a misconception? Um, it, sounds, it sounds to me from what you're saying that they're now back in the market and looking to replenish goods, maybe bring in new collections and freshen up a bit. So when we have our internal discussions, you know, I told everybody in June, yes, it all looks nice now, end of May, June, but be careful because I feel it's like a refill, you know, it's going to be in June, but I have the feeling maybe July is not going to follow, you know, that just there's some type of refill and after June, it will be over. And very surprisingly, and I have to admit, I'm the first one that was surprised, in July we did better than in June. So it's already two months in a row that we see numbers increasing, and that I think is a positive sign. And is that across the board, or is it specific markets? Maybe China is is recovering stronger than the US or India, for example. Are you seeing those orders um, in various geographies? You know, I'm learning a lot about human behavior. And I'm, I have to say, when I see what's happening, I'm a little bit surprised by how humans, you know, can just go on in life. And I have to say, it's not general. Like I said, Europeans probably are more conservative. But in the U.S., yes, we've seen orders. All our major customers are contacting us. Okay, I'm not saying that the quantities is, are the same than before the COVID, but yes, they're all there. They're all contacting us. And I see the same in India and also in a way in China. I was the first one to be surprised to see that it's now the second month in a row that orders coming to us. I thought it was only going to be June, but now I see July also. And I think that human beings are very proactive and they don't like to, you know, just uh, say it's the end of the world. No, they look at the future. And very surprisingly, I think Americans, for sure, they look to the future. And all the our retailers, customers are there when in contact with them and ready to be active. It's very encouraging to hear that because I, I think there is still a lot of concern. And, and as you said, it's the market's by, 
from what I understand, is by no means back to pre-COVID levels. It's just, um, it's all relative. And there is, I think, some expectation as we move towards the end of the year and the holiday season that there will be some a continued bounce back. But in terms of the way the industry is approaching the recovery and approaching and the changes that have needed to be made to deal with them um, with COVID, what are you seeing in, in how the industry has changed in the last few months? The problem is when I talk, it's always the question, what is the industry? If it's the retailers, okay, if it's the one selling to the consumer, they understood long time ago that every year you sell more diamonds than the previous year, besides of 2020, of course. But if you see the numbers, they're growing. They're maybe not jumping, but they're slightly growing every year for the last 30, 40 years. So it's not that less diamonds get sold in two, when they're sold in 2019 than in 2005. More diamonds mm. got sold. The industry has drastically changed. I think that the industry has to rebuild itself. There are a lot of diamond dealers. There are a lot of uh, manufacturers. Yes, there's a consolidation going on. So when my friends tell me, yeah, there are much less diamonds getting sold, I says, yeah, it looked like that for you, sitting in the diamond books, in the diamond exchange. But when you look mm -hmm. at the retailer level, no, there are not less diamonds sold. So I think that the industry has really to go to think more B2C and not just to look what's happening at the door and that's it. I used to live all my life in Antwerp and I saw many diamond dealers, but then diamond stopped at the entrance door of the diamond books. But that's only where it starts. It's after that that it starts. How is it going to be set? How is it going to be displayed? How is it going to get sold? Okay, and so the part of the industry itself, I think that there's a lot of work to be done. Right. I mean, it's not the first time I've heard that um, critique of the industry, and I've had a number of executives sort of urging the trade to really always have the end consumer in mind, no matter where they sit along the, the diamond pipeline, and to really understand what's required of their supply. How do you approach that as a grading lab? When you're grading a diamond, you know, how do you service your customers while still keeping the end consumer in mind as the beneficiary? But IGI, we took the decision long time ago that we have to think B2C. It means our product, I mean, the four C's, and today also, of course, identification is the same for all diamonds. We're always going to identify the item, diamonds, colored stones, lab-grown diamonds. There's first the identification, and then, of course, you have the classic four Cs. But after that, we try to integrate it, some items that will make it more exciting and more helpful for the jeweler to sell. That means with some jewelers, we're going to develop a co-branded cert because that jeweler does not only sell jewelry, but he sells a brand. You know very well that a, a good part of the population is going to look for a brand, okay? Some people buy Nike, some people buy Adidas. I mean, everybody has his shoe. Many people also have their brand jewelry. So this is one type of customers that are going to look for the brand, and there we're going to help them by being the expert to the brand. A little bit like 
Intel inside. Nobody sees Intel, but everybody wants to know that Intel is there. We are the expert giving the guarantee to the consumer that he can have peace of mind. He has an IGI report, but still mm. the brand is there because he entered that shop because of that brand. Then you also have the major retailers in the US or the mom and pop shops. They use IGI as a brand. Okay, For them, IGI is going to be the brand because they sell an ABC product, but still they need a brand. Okay, they need the brand that gives them the quality. So there's very different ways to approach what the retailer is looking for. That's why we certify not only the, the, the stones, but we also fin- uh, uh, certify the piece of jewelry because many consumers that are going to buy melee jewelry, melee diamonds, they say, well, hey, it's not because I'm only spending $500 that I cannot have a report. But I'm not going to ask for a report for every single melee stone in my jewelry piece. So I will get a report for the full jewelry piece. So we have a wide range of different type of reports. The four C's is always the basis. And after that, we will adapt it to the needs of our customers. And to the needs of your retail customers. So it depends on the business model and the position of the retailer in the market and to through your discussions with them to prepare the report according to their need. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. So that means that we work with the diamond dealers who is going to give us the goods, and we work with the retailer who is going to tell us which is the product that fits him the best in order to satisfy his type of consumers. It's interesting because I think one of the strong trends that has been developing in the market for some time now and maybe is being accelerated in the COVID era is that shift to branding, that consumers want to know the story behind and the promise behind the company that's selling them their jewelry. And that has various components. As you said, there are the big brands that stand on their own, you know, the Nikes, the Adidas of the world. And then there are those, the independents who don't have a brand of their own, so to speak, but need, um, but work with other brands. And I guess IGI is such a brand that can help them um, strengthen their story. Yes, I always say that IGI is the expert to the brand in one case. And in the other case, IGI is the expert, uh, sorry, is the brand for the non-brands. Okay. Mm. What you said just before about the COVID that no people are looking more and more about branding, I sorry, I don't think it's true. I think that in our industry, maybe we didn't realize it, but in other industries, you know, when today you can buy Karl Lagerfeld clothes in a Zara shop, you know, I don't know if you remember a few years ago when Karl Lagerfeld sold for the first time a clothes in a Zara shop, I think it was Zara or H&M. I mean, there was a line for hours, okay? That means that today, people want at all levels, people prefer to spend a little more and to have a brand. And it existed already in all the other industries. Even in our industry, uh, jewelers like, I'm not going to name uh, many, but Bulgari, Cartier, I mean, they are big sellers of diamond jewelry, very big sellers, much bigger than 20 years ago. Why? Because they are maybe a little bit more affordable in prices today, okay? And 
the customer gets a brand. Okay, so for me, there's two types of brands. There's a brand by the name, but you also have price brands. Some companies people don't go because of the brand of the name, but because they know that that brand is going to sell them quality at a very very competitive price. So for me, this is also a brand, and I'm thinking about some of the biggest retailers in the U.S. You know, they're not going to put, they're not going to ask for a co-branded report. They're going to ask for an IGI report that they know the consumer is coming to them because they know the, the consumer knows he's going to get a very good price and at the same time a report guaranteeing him the quality. Hmm. What, what sort of brand recognition can a lab have? You know, at a consumer level, are consumers aware of um, of what IGI is and what IGI stands for and of other labs um, for that matter? Or are they not just, or they're not really, they're relying on the jeweler to provide that trust and promise. And so it's, I guess it's up to the jeweler to provide, to say to them, this is an IGI report and this is what IGI stands for. Yes, but again, like I said, there's some brands that will use IGI or other labs just for the expertise. And they are going to, of course, concentrate on their own brand. But the majority is going to use certificates like IGI as the brand. So the brand has become something that you cannot live without. I mean, the certificate is something you cannot live without it today. You know, 30 years ago, nobody wanted to hear about uh, certificates. Today, you cannot sell a 30-pointer without a certificate. Every day, we issue over 10,000 of jewelry reports, okay, for all sizes reports, very small uh, jewelry pieces, large, larger jewelry pieces, all time. It has become a standard. The consumer wants a report. Um, okay. And, and I mean, I'm just thinking in terms of my original question about um, the changes that have taken place in the industry as a result of COVID. And then looking forward, do you think that trend is going to continue? Um, what do you foresee or how do you foresee the jewellery industry and the diamond industry evolving in terms of the role that the labs have to play in certifying goods and in terms of enabling some efficiency within the pipeline? So, you know, a big change with COVID, it started already before, of course, but now it even increased, is online selling. Now, when you sell online, you don't have that same physical contact with the customer. It's not the mom and pop shop where the, you know, the owner of the shop can tell nice stories and build and, you know, offer a cup of coffee and make the consumer feel, you know, confidence. No, it's all done online. Now, even if I believe more in, in a mixture of online and physical shops in the future, still all that online part needs certification much more than before. Because it's, uh, you don't have any direct contact. So the certificate brings authenticity, brings trust, brings a lot of things that you cannot give if you don't have a physical contract, unless you have a nice report to show to the consumer, guaranteeing him that he can buy online without any risk, that everything has been checked, and that the piece he's buying corresponds exactly to his or her expectations. Right. And the other aspect of um, of the shift to digital, and we're hearing this from a number of other labs, 
is that the digitization of the market and also the the acceptance and adoption of innovation and technology is making is enabling the labs to do more things sort of automatically using AI to to grade a diamond and to grade the color and clarity of the diamond. What is your view of that trend that seems to be taking shape that maybe automation will help to make the market, the supply chain more efficient? Now, I think that, it, uh, of course, automation can help, but this is something different than the providing the trust to the consumer. This is more on the manufacturing side to maybe have it more efficient and quicker. Okay. But I think, and of course, we are busy with it also, it will still take a lot, a lot of time because automation works now for some part of the diamonds, but it's not possible yet for melee goods. It's not part, uh, possible yet for finished jewelry. It's not possible yet for cheaper diamonds. So I don't like when the industry provides, I mean, or says it to the public, we're going to provide you something, but it's only good for certain qualities of diamonds. I think this is going to create two different types of consumers. The consumer that spends a lot of money and that can afford that type of report, and then the consumer that spends a few hundred dollars, buys jewelry piece with many goods, and to him we're going to say, yeah, your jewelry piece was not graded automatically. So I think we have to be very careful with that. Behind the screen, you can do as much automation as you want. And of course, everyone is going to try to do that. But to the consumer, I think this should only be announced when you know that the vast majority of the jewelry pieces sold on the market done automatically, automated. That's an interesting angle that, uh, that, that I haven't heard before in the conversation about automation, and it's, I think yeah, it's something worth exploring. Because I think that, that in the beginning, we always try to see B2C. I mean, nobody is going to buy, no consumer will buy jewelry if we don't make them feel confident and make them feel that what they are getting is very important and that we have to give them the best. Right, and which brings us to the next sort of trend that that's um, been identified by many of the labs as well, and that is, and and which I think has a similar sort of concern that we are creating a hierarchy of demand, and that is in the, around the issue of traceability. That uh, perhaps um, consumers might there's a question if consumers will will be prepared to pay a premium for a diamond that is. In which, from which you're able to trace the origin of that stone versus the same um, quality of diamond that um, doesn't have that traceability. What is your view of, um, of that um, whole traceability discussion and trend within the market? And, and what is IGI um, doing in that space? Are you involved in providing a responsibly sourced traceable um, diamond certificate to your customers? Okay, so again, there, first I want to say something that I think is important and not from a gemological point of view, uh, but from being, you know, many tens of years of, uh, in the industry, whatever was in the past, and I don't know how bad it was, I think that 
we are always in this industry on the defense. Okay, now 99% of the diamonds, I'm not an expert, but I think 99% of the diamonds are from clean origin. I think this industry is cleaner than almost any other industry in the world. The garment industry, the, the clothing industry, the, I mean, if you look, you know, how clothes are manufactured in, 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 in Asian countries, uh, when you see how some, how do you say, copper gold is extracted, I think the diamond industry, which finally is only in a few, mostly in a few hands, is a clean industry. So I have nothing against the origin, okay? Fine, if somebody wants it, again, IGI, we offer the basics, you know, the identification, the four Cs. And then if a customer wants us to put the origin, we will take the information we are getting from any of those companies such as Everledger, and we will add it to our report and our website. on our website, you will be able to see it. I mean, that means we will provide origin based on the information we're getting. Of course, we're going to control that the information we received is genuine information. The same way we could, you know, add a light return. If a customer wants to know the light return of his report or hearts and arrows, some brands are selling their diamonds as hearts and arrows. We have nothing against any of those added products that finally helps to build brands. Every brand has a different approach again. Okay. Now, is it necessary to have it for all diamonds? First of all, it's impossible because, again, we're going to say, because first, it's at the end of the day, it's a consumer who is going to pay the cost of that origin report, and there's a cost involved. And then again, for which diamonds are we going to do it? Are we going to do it for every three pointers, one pointer? I mean, if you look, there are more two and three pointers sold in the world, thousand times more two, three pointers sold than one characters. So right. where are we going to do with that origin report? So, yes, it can be very good for some customers that want it, but if we're not going to provide it to everyone, here again, we're going to create two industries. The one that's buying a $1 million, and very often he has a less ecological approach than the one spending $500. The $1 million guy, we're going to promise him that his diamond is from the cleanest possible origin, but the one that's going to Spend three hundred dollars. We're going to tell him, sorry, but you know we didn't have enough money to do all the origin tracking for your jewelry port. So mm. maybe it'd be great. Okay, does the industry really need it? I think we're very much on the defensive here. Mm. Well, the, uh, the the argument might the argument might be that the in this case there isn't. Um, what is the harm in creating that um, premium product that has has traceability in built into it and, and providing that for the for the customer that requests it. No no harm if you can do it for a very cheap price and if you can do it for the entire range of diamonds and colored stone. But again, not for just exclusive customers. Mm-hmm. I'm very much breaking markets in two, you know? Right. I, I, I think th- the industry is moving in the direction though that a majority of diamonds will be proven to be responsibly sourced. And I think that it's incumbent on the industry to, to provide that 
they've promised for, for, for consumers. I agree. I agree. And it's perfect. And the result will be that we will see that over 99% of the diamonds are fitting that category and that the diamond industry, in fact, is a rather clean industry. Right. Yeah, I agree. And I think we, we certainly have come a, a long way in the last decade or two. That's for sure. Um, I do want to shift um, focus um, a little bit before before we um, close up. And I'd like to ask you about your operations in China, because um, IGI is one of the few labs, or I think it's, uh, it could be the only Western lab that has an operation in mainland China. Can you give us an overview of how you operate in China and what enables you to operate there and what is fairly regulated um, market for the industry? Okay, so without going into the technical details, first, IGI opened already in China, I think in 2005, 2006, but as an educational organization. So first of all, we always considered education is key number one. You know, without education, without having consumers educated, without having the salespeople educated, you cannot create a market. And probably in China more than in any other country, the Chinese people, as we all know, they are very, very keen about education. And I have to say that it's really a place where I don't think salespeople can be hired to sell jewelry if they did not receive proper education. And IGI has really built a very strong reputation there. So I will say that the vast majority of jewelers in China have been educated by IGI. It's also a country where even the very high-end brands, that you all know the names, okay, their salespeople are trained by IGI. We even organize many seminars to consumers of those high-brand shops. That means that it's, it's something that they don't even think about selling diamonds without providing proper education. And that's the only way we think for China to become a major buyer of diamonds. You know, every country, every culture buys different. U.S. has a certain culture. China has another culture. India has, again, another culture. In China, it's, you know, they're thinking about it. They're analyzing the situation. They need to understand the situation, okay? And only when they feel they're in full control, they will go and buy diamonds. So the salespeople have to be very professional. And then we realize that the demand of certification is there as well. Now, it's not easy, and I'm not going to go into the details, to in China itself. And it's true that most of the diamonds entering China are already certified before entering China, but there's still a lot of stones and a lot of jewelry pieces that demand certification. And it's also becoming like second nature. It will not get, it will not get sold without a proper certificate. If it's a diamond, a colored stone, a piece of jewelry, the Chinese consumers want to get a certificate. And we are there as the first international brand in China. Okay, interesting. I guess it boils down again to establishing yourself as a brand and working with the various different types of retailers that are out there to, to cater to their needs. And what is true in other markets would be true in China. 
I think it's interesting that your focus on on education um, enabled you to establish a foothold in that market. Very much. It's a it's an interesting approach. Um, I guess it's um, sorry for over ten years it was almost only education. Hmm. Okay, and I'm sure that that remains the the focus as um, as well. Um, just to to shift gears again to a different topic, you mentioned earlier that um, that IGI is involved in finished jewelry, in loose natural diamonds, but also in lab grown diamonds. So it's the full gambit of um, of what a jeweler can offer in their stores. And I was wondering if you can give us some insight as to what you're observing in the lab-grown space during the COVID period. You know, what sort of recovery are you seeing in, in, in lab-grown or was it um, hit harder initially and then uh, than natural diamonds? What is your take on the, on the lab-grown market? Okay, so uh, first, Lab grown, of course, is still a much, much smaller market than natural diamonds. It got hit in the same way to start with, but as it is a much smaller market and it's concentrated in much fewer hands, it was much easier for them to react. Oh, yeah, and then also they don't depend of miners, mining production, which does not exist. So, of course, for the lab-grown people, it was much easier to react. And yes, in the first uh, month, six weeks, we've seen the first recovery came from the lab-grown people. Now it's slowly start to balancing, but still, the lab-grown people, because of the reasons I just said, much more proactive and reacted much faster, yes. Hmm. Interesting that point that the lab grown industry has a bit more flexibility given that they the supply is not um, as complicated I guess as the uh, natural diamond um, market and that they don't rely on 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 mining and these massive operations to um, to control that control supply. Of course, I think this is one of the strength of the lab grown industry is that they started you know a few years ago from a new platform where the diamond industry is an old platform that you need to restructurize and rebuild, okay? We all know that, you know, to give some example, uh, after World War II, Germany was completely destroyed and finally recovered much faster than the UK, which was not destroyed and still was there with old factories. The lab-grown industry, was built from nothing and started, you know, with the most modern technology, the most modern ways of uh, selling, marketing, advertising. So they have an advantage. But at the same time, I'm convinced that the lab-grown industry cannot survive without the natural diamond. I mean, natural diamond, the industry that has to remain in order to have the lab-grown diamonds working. So... What I'm saying since long time to the people, don't fight one against each other because each one will stay, work together. And today we see finally, for the last six months, one year, we see some of the big diamond players entering the lab-grown world. And I think this is very good and very healthy for the industry. Mm. We've discussed this before, but between in previous conversations, that the tension between the the two um, is maybe is not really serving the industry in any way. And 
in a very uh, the, the 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 bigger possibility or opportunity might be that um, consumers would see lab grown as an entry point into the natural diamond industry. That their first purchase that they might that might be more affordable to them would enable them then to build on that and and move into natural diamonds, which might have um, that sort of uh, premium appeal, so to speak. Of course, I think that. I see my daughter who is 18. I see a lot of young girls. They are completely disconnected from the diamond world because diamonds became too expensive, not affordable, very little advertisement, very little promotion. I think that with lab-grown diamonds, my daughter will buy a diamond, a lab-grown diamond for a few hundred dollars, okay? But later in stage, later in life, She's going to say, yeah, but I had that one already. Now I'm getting engaged and I want the real one. Maybe she'll be happy with the lab one, but there's a good chance she's going to ask for the real one. Mm. And I think there are stages in life and that in a way the lab-grown diamonds can reconnect tens of millions of young people with the diamond industry. And for the moment, there's a complete disconnection. And I think this is more dangerous, the disconnection between the generation, the gap, is more dangerous than lab-grown diamonds. So I'm sure that lab-grown diamonds, even if it's only 30% of the consumer that at the end will buy an, a natural diamond, those, even those 30% that are slowly disappearing because the natural diamond industry did not do any effort in the last 10 years. So it could, it's good that some major players in the industry are playing on both sides. And there are steps in life. You know, you first buy a poster, then you buy a lithography, and then you, then you buy the original painting. I never heard about the opposite. I never heard about the opposite. The opposite, right. You haven't met me, <laughs> or you haven't seen my collection, my oh, art collection. Tell me with the first. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, or, or I haven't moved past the poster um, phase yet. Maybe yeah. that's the the disclosure, but it's interesting, yeah. and I I think I do think it will take a um, a change in mindset that perhaps um COVID has um has brought to the industry that we aren't hearing about um the threat of synthetics as much as we used to as we're dealing with a different threat in the last um in the last few months. Um, before we close, Roland, I would like to um, give you the opportunity to to talk a bit about IGI's um, projects. And um, you recently launched a jewelry design competition um, for beginner artisans, beginner designers, and um, which was an interesting announcement. And can you tell us a bit about that competition and what influenced IGI to launch it at this time? Yeah, sure. So if you see, we have a banner on Rapnet. And we wrote two, three months ago, we believe in our industry. You know, that's our so-called ad. And we wanted to give this message because we all need to believe in this industry. And what we realized with COVID is too many people just resigned, didn't do anything, waited. And we think now there's a lot of young people outside and we need to give them the chance, you know, to come up with their designs and to do something creative, because this industry has to go on. So I think that with this contest, it's one probably of the very few positive, creative initiatives that was taken in the last months. We have had many, many hundreds of replies, and it's going to allow 
hundreds or thousands of jewelers to send their designs. Some of them, about 30, if I'm correct, 30 or 35 designs will be physically created. Different prices uh, will be given. There's also a jury who is going to select the best prices, uh, the best uh, designs. And I think that many initiatives like this have to be taken, mainly by the bigger players, because this industry needs to remain alive. And this is probably the only way, by bringing a new generation inside this industry. And again, at IGI, we very much focus on B2C. We don't think this industry, and it shouldn't be our world because we are a laboratory, okay? But we realize that our reports are probably the only items that go from the manufacturer to the consumer. So our reports are very important because they go step by step with first with the, the diamond in the factory, then to the jewelry manufacturer, then to the jeweler, then to the retailer and the consumer. So the certificate stays all the time with the diamonds and the jewelry. And it's a very important document that people will see all the time. So we feel responsible, okay, at every stage to try to help so that at the end, when the consumer gets his product, he's really getting something he or she will be proud of to wear or to give or whatever. So that's in a way part of our role, besides, of course, the most important one, which is to identify and grade the items we receive. Mm. Um, okay, and I, and I think it's commendable because I think a lot of, a lot of the, uh, as you say, it's the smaller artisans, the smaller designers, the sort of one-man shows that are really struggling the most at various stages of the pipeline. And I think this competition gives them an opportunity to move forward in some way in their work. How do designers enter this competition? It's the, through the IGI website. Yes, through the IGI website, you go on igi.org and you can find everything, how to write in. I mean, all the working, I don't even know exactly how it works, but it's all on our website on the IGI Gem blog. Yes. Great. Okay, perfect. Well, Roland, thank you very much for your time and your insight. It's certainly a complicated and dynamic market environment that we're all navigating and I think you're in a unique position to provide an assessment of where we are at the moment. And I think you've given us some food for thought in that sense. So it's much appreciated. And I um, thank you for joining us. I'm the one thanking you. And I hope only the best to all of us. Likewise. And hopefully we can meet soon. So um, thanks um, again, Roland. And thank you to everyone who's been listening. And we hope to see you again next time. 